Hello and welcome to Employment Talk. We're here to discuss the HR issues affecting you and keeping you up to date with the latest employment law news. I'm Glenn Hayes, National Head of Employment Law at Erwin Mitchell. Hi, and I'm Jo Mosley. I'm a professional support lawyer. I write our blogs and newsletters and keep the team and our clients up to date on what's happening in the world of employment law and HR. So what are we going to talk about today, Jo? Well, last time we discussed sexual harassment and the proposed changes to the law under the Worker Protection Amendment of Equality Act 2010 bill. Easy for you to say. Well, it's not that easy to get that out, is it? No. (laughs) No, it isn't. That bill also includes provisions which will reinstate liability of employers for the actions of third parties against their staff, so discrimination against their staff. But I thought, Before we go into the detail of the bill, we ought to treat our listeners to a history lesson as the law in this area has changed pretty significantly over the last 10 years. So before we do that, can I ask you whether you enjoyed history at school, Glenn? You're going to assume that I'm going to say no here, aren't you? But actually, I I did go. So I I actually got an A in my A-levels at uh, history. I... uh, really enjoyed it and I frequently go on holidays that have got a historical element to them so I've just obviously come back from Jordan where I went to Petra where I had lots of history associated with that so I, I do like it actually. Mm, so do you want to do you want to do the history lesson? No not really. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd say that. Uh, okay I'll do it. I know I am actually a history graduate so I'm going to top your well, well done. Yeah. I'm going to top your A-level with a um, first class honours degree in history. Well done. Mm, Indeed. But um, let's go back to the case in point. So in terms of how this legal area has evolved, prior to 2008, there was no specific legislation which protected employees from this type of discrimination at all. And the only circumstances in which employers could be held responsible if, for example, staff were abused or harassed by customers or clients um, was when an employee could show that their employer's failure to deal with that type of harassment was linked to a protected characteristic which they themselves shared. So it's probably better to give an example, actually, to um, explain that in a bit more detail. So if, for example, an employer had ignored complaints by black staff about abuse and discrimination that they suffered in in the workplace, but but dealt with those of its white staff, then a black member of staff would be able to bring a successful claim against their employer because obviously they're treated people differently based on their protected characteristics. And then once the Labour government came into power, they introduced specific protection. That was in 2008. And that was then subsequently included in the Equality Act 2010. But as as I'm sure you remember, the way in which it worked was a little bit odd. The the rules... The three-strike rule, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. um, And what they basically found was that the employers were only liable for third-party harassment where it had happened on two previous occasions and the employer hadn't done anything to stop it. So it was a, it was a, it was an odd, it was an odd way of doing it. But nonetheless, that's that's the law as it stood. And then when we had a different government, 
that provision was repealed altogether in 2013. And that was because the government at that time said, actually, we don't think that we need specific protection because it's covered under the existing protections. I think they were thinking more under the sort of direct discrimination routes. Yeah. But as I think lots of employment lawyers pointed out at the time, it's really not that easy to bring claims. And it is true that you can bring a claim of direct discrimination. In some cases, you can even bring an indirect discrimination case. It's not easy. And the government now appear to have shifted their stance and acknowledge that employees need greater protection. And they are now supporting this private members bill. So before we look at those new proposals, I think it would be helpful for us to demonstrate to our listeners, Glenn, how difficult it is currently for employees to bring successful claims. So I'm going to introduce a quiz at an early stage in the proceedings. Oh, good. Yeah, well, it is good because there's only one question. It's actually quite difficult to find that much case law around this. And that's, I think, testament to the fact that these cases are not easy to bring. So are you ready for this one? I am. Okay. so this involved a teacher whose nationality was Scottish. She spoke with a Scottish accent, but her ethnicity was Pakistani. Okay. Some of her students mimicked an Indian accent when they were talking um, in class, and they also used a racist term about her. And over time, the number and frequency of these incidents increased. And she complained after each incident and the school, in line with its ethos, which in their case focused on restorative practice rather than discipline, dealt with the pupils by talking to them and their parents about their inappropriate behaviour and asking them to apologise to the teacher. Rather than expel them, for example. Yes, yes, yeah. Didn't even exclude them from the class. But um, the teacher didn't think that the school were doing enough to prevent the abuse or to protect her. And she wanted the pupils in question to be excluded from her class and for the incidents to be treated as hate crimes and dealt with under criminal law. So she wanted really quite tough sanctions. So as this situation evolved and the problem didn't go away, the school did later on report incidents to the police as hate crimes and they sought guidance from them about how to deal with those sorts of racist incidents. But it said that it was unable to exclude pupils from the class in part due to guidance issued by the Scottish government about excluding pupils. Anyway, this went on for quite some time. She became ill with stress and was signed off work. She raised a grievance and when that wasn't upheld, she resigned, claiming that her relationship with the school's leaders had broken down and that it was unsafe for her to return to work. She argued that the school had subjected her to direct discrimination in the way it had dealt with the situation. What do you think? Did she win or not? So her argument is that if she was the different race, she would have been treated differently. Yes. No, I don't. Well, I, I think the school's argument would be if you were a white person suffering abuse by black children, for example, we would have applied the same restorative approach to the children in that example. So I think the claim is destined to fail. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And the reasons that you give are were the ones given by the tribunals as well. So 
the tribunal accepted that the pupil's behaviour towards this teacher was racially motivated. But obviously, as you've said, that wasn't enough to get her home on a direct discrimination claim. She's also got to show that her employer treated her less favourably than it would treat others. And she either had to point to a real comparator or demonstrate that her employer would have treated a hypothetical one in a different way. And the she couldn't identify an actual comparator and the tribunal decided that the school would have treated a hypothetical comparator, which, as you've said, it identified as a white teacher subjected to discriminatory language or behaviour by pupils in exactly the same way. So, yeah, yeah spot on. So what's your experience then, Glenn, of dealing with third party harassment claims? Did you litigate many based on the three strikes rule? Uh, no. Not huge amounts. We had some. I mean, it was always a bit of a toss-up, really, because there was two pieces of legislation at the time. There was obviously the Equality Act and the uh, stuff that we've described, but there was also the Protection from Harassment Act, which was of a civil mm-hmm. uh, piece of legislation that didn't require the same three strikes. So, um, but the problem with that piece of legislation was that it, it was in the high courts generally, and. Um, be if if some not many claims were brought under those provisions i don't think because obviously of the cost con- consequences if somebody lost mm. so the ones that we did do and it was obviously mainly defending them there wasn't sort of huge amounts of st- stuff that came through but there the were there were cases definitely where you know if you use your example uh, of the uh, children in the school you know people being harassed by a third party i.e the pupils in that example that you know, that will get you around the issue that we've just talked about in the direct discrimination uh, type uh, arena. Yeah, yeah. And what about now? What are employers doing about it? I'm assuming that most will want to do something about it to protect their staff, even though the law doesn't specifically require them to do so. Yeah, look, I think um, with tribunal uh, awards spiralling, then I think a decent employer will want to do so to avoid those awards. And whilst the legal risks now aren't as high as they once were, there's lots of other non-financial reasons why employers would need need to do something about it anyway. So, for example, mm-hmm. with the difficulties of attracting and retaining staff, if you don't support those staff, they're just going to leave. You know, your reputation is going to suffer. So they're going to tell people that you're not the sort of employee you want to work for. Yeah. You know, people's performance would dip as well or suffer dramatically. So, you know, people, if they're constantly being undermined or abused by customers or staff or whoever, then they're never going to work to the best of their ability. So that's a, a major problem. Happy workforce is a productive one as a general yeah. rule. Um, and obviously, there's a massive issue about mental illness as well. So, you know, mental health issues are a massive concern. We've spoken about it on these podcasts before, for example. But if somebody becomes ill, the costs of dealing with that, both in terms of things like sick pay, but the, but the impact on the business generally are, are massive. So trying to avoid that by doing some fairly straightforward training would be would be well advisable in my view. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm not so going you, to promote our modules because you told me off for doing that last time, Joe. I didn't tell you off, did I? You did. You said it was a blatant plug and it was unnecessary. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to do it later as well, Sol. <laughs> oh, dear. So you mentioned that the legal risks are not as high as they once were, but they can still be significant, I'm guessing. And I think it would be helpful for our listeners if you can explain what claims employees can still now bring as the law currently stands. Yeah, okay. Well, look, the main one is uh, the risk of a constructive dismissal claim. So 
obviously employers uh, have got a duty of trust and confidence to abide by and if they don't deal with that problem then they could undermine that significantly somebody could claim constructive dismissal yeah. obviously the individual needs two years service to be able to bring that and it isn't available to uh, people who aren't employees so it's not available to workers such as casual staff for example and mm. um, so in addition to the constructive dismissal argument there's obviously the possibility of bringing direct discrimination complaints on the basis that the employer has discriminated against the individual in the way that they've dealt with it but obviously, we've already discussed the problems establishing uh, that. But but there's also a risk of an indirect discrimination complaint. So you hinted at that, but that's, I mean, it is tricky. So you'd have to show as an employee that the employer uh, has a provision criteria or practice that puts people, puts employees sharing a protected characteristic at a particular disadvantage compared to others, and the employer can't justify that. So, you know, the, there, there are those uh, elements open to, to people, definitely. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we really don't see many successful indirect discrimination claims about that. But there is one that springs to mind, which, you know, demonstrates in itself the difficulty. And I guess that you'll remember this one, Glenn, it involved a claim against an NHS trust. And in that case, the employee argued that the employer's failure to ensure that staff were required to report all incidents of racist abuse by patients amounted to indirect discrimination. And they succeeded. The tribunal upheld their claim. And that was strictly on the basis that the employer's attitude in not requiring this had contributed to an environment in which racial abuse was more likely to occur. And that, of course, constituted a disadvantage for non-white staff. Um, and the, the claimant was non-white, which is why um, they succeeded with their claim. I mean, it's a pretty high bar, though, isn't it, Joe? That absolutely, um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Doesn't sit, you know, other than reporting it, it doesn't doesn't involve doing something with it, for example. Yeah, that's so, true. Um, you know, the I think what is important though is the Equality and Human Rights Commission's produced some technical guidance, which gives a good example of when an indirect discrimination claim may work. So yeah, the guidance what does that, that say? They, yeah, well, what they say is that it's a hotel worker complains that she's been sexually harassed by a customer. An employer says, look, I'm not going to take any action in response to the complaints because the hotel isn't responsible for what third parties do and takes the view that the customer comes first. Uh -huh. So that says that the employer is going to take no action regardless of whether the person harassed is a man or a woman. Okay, And that practice clearly places women at a particular disadvantage in comparison to men as the statistics show that women are more likely to be sexually harassed at work than men. And it's unlikely, in my view, that the employer is going to be able to justify that practice of taking no action because there is no legitimate aim there. It's not a legitimate aim to prioritise customers over the safety of workers. So yeah. you know, that's the guidance they give. And it, it, is a, it is a good example. And it's, it's a sort of attitude type issue, isn't it? You know, mm. it, It's not taking the case on its merits. It's we're adopting a stance that customer comes first regardless. Yeah, and I think these days people are less and less likely to put up with that. We're in a market where people can more easily move between roles. And I'm guessing that this, you know, you're more likely to get this sort of abuse if you're in public-facing roles like bars, restaurants, that sort of thing. Well, and that's why you often see notices and listen to when you call into certain types of line, for example, public, you know, with deal with particularly tricky issues to say we won't tolerate abuse of our mm. staff, X, Y, Z, you know, this is what we're going to do if we get it. So, yeah. you know, clearly, you know, some employers are more at, at risk to, um, than others, really, because of the type of 
customer that they're dealing with. Yeah, 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 got that. Okay, so I think we've both agreed that the law doesn't really adequately protect staff at the moment. And let's have a look at what might change. So can you explain to our listeners what this new bill says about third party harassment, please? Yeah. So, look, the the new provisions don't mirror the previous ones. So it's not like a three strikes rule type situation. So um, employees will be protected from harassment if it's linked to a protected characteristic. So sex, race, disability, sexual orientation, age, gender reassignment, religion and belief. Yeah. And the employer now will have an obligation to take all reasonable steps to prevent it. So it's a shift from the um, onto the employer to take those reasonable steps. And it's all reasonable steps. Uh, to prevent that harassment taking place. Okay. So I'm going to come back to you to explore the reasonable steps defence that employers might be able to utilise in these sorts of circumstances in a minute. But first, I think it would be helpful to dig a little bit deeper into the proposed changes. I've been reading around this a little bit and there seems to be quite a lot of controversy about the particular provisions about third party harassment in this bill. And there's been some doubt that it's actually going to become law. Why are people getting so exercised about it, Glenn, in your opinion? Well, the the, the concern that's been raised is what they describe as the chilling impact on the original draft. And what it's what it's really around is about people's right to express their opinions. Mm -hmm. So the government looked at that and it's redrafted the clause to try and protect free speech. So, for example, in relation to a speech that the employee overhears during the work, so an after-dinner speaker, for example, which we all know can be quite close to the line sometimes, or over it in other occasions. (laughs) Yeah. And don't Um, forget Boris Johnson's on that circuit now. Yeah, well, good. And the employer is not liable if the comment isn't directed at the employee. And if it's a conversation, then they overhear and they're not party to it. They exclude them from the protection. Okay. The carve out only applies to certain opinions which aren't indecent or grossly offensive. But the problem is that those terms aren't defined. Mm. So the Equality um, Commission Human Rights Guidance has sort of tried to help us interpret those, but we'll have to wait for that to come out. But there are some obvious examples. So... <clears throat> comments that a particular race is inferior to others is likely to be grossly offensive, for example. Yeah, yeah. I imagine we're going to need that guidance because what one person considers to be offensive, grossly or otherwise, is going to differ very differently. So that will be essential reading if this does come into force. Yeah, well, and be and will be trotted out in employment tribunals around the country. Yeah, yeah. I suppose... The point that you're making, though, about speech that isn't directed at a particular uh, employee, that I can see that also being quite problematic. So if we take, for example, I don't know, a waiter, for example, and he or she overhears people making fun of gay people. Now, they may be offended by the comments and they could say that listening to them or overhearing them makes their working environment hostile and degrading, which would ordinarily meet the definition of harassment, wouldn't it? Um, But it doesn't look as though they're going to be able to bring a claim for harassment under the way it's currently um, drafted. So they're going to have to just put up with it. Is that your view? Well, at the minute appears to be the position yeah whether it changes before it makes its way through the um through the lords and onto the uh, statute bills and other issues so mm-hmm. 
I suppose it does what it does do is it, it it demonstrates quite how difficult some of these issues are. Um, yeah. that you, you can't police everything that goes on in your work environment where it involves other people that you don't directly control or employ. Yeah, and maybe that's maybe that's right because, you know, the employer being responsible for everything, you know, yeah. is that fair? I'd, yeah. You know, yeah, that's true. It's a personal view, but... Okay, so I think what we probably ought to let our listeners know is that this bill is currently making its way through the Lords, as you've said, and they have very much pushed back on these free speech provisions um, because, as you've said, they're worried about the unintended consequences. And there, I have seen a little bit of commentary which suggests there are real concerns now that the whole bill, so that's not just this bit about third party harassment, but the stuff about sexual harassment as well, is going to fail. Um, we'll have to wait and see. I do know that the unions have written to the government to ask it to stand firm. What we do know is that if it does pass and become law, it's unlikely to come into effect before 2024. Okay, so let's go back then, Glenn, to the reasonable steps defence, which employers will be able to use to avoid liability for claims that have been proven. So can you briefly explain what that means in general terms and what employers have to do to rely on it? Yeah, so so if, if an individual has been subjected to discrimination, Okay, the employer can escape liability for the actions of its employees if it's taken all reasonable steps to prevent that uh, discrimination taking place in the first place. Okay, yeah. But it's a really high standard, so it's all reasonable steps. So if there's a step that they haven't taken that would be reasonable, the employer won't escape liability in those circumstances because they haven't taken every reasonable step they could have done. Mm. So large employers will be expected to do more on the basis they've got more resources, but it's not just large employers. SMEs will also have to revisit their policies and procedures. And whilst you're expected to have a policy in place to deal with things like harassment, you've got to be proactive as well. So you've got to publicise it. You've got to provide suitable training. So employees and managers will need different types of training. So we've got our online training stuff, Joe, that I've you know, I get told off for plugging, but we've also <laughs> uh, got a really uh, cool platform now uh, on diversity and inclusion that's that's really helpful in establishing this defence. Yes. But it's got to be regularly reviewed and updated. So if it's become stale, then you're going to have to do it again. You're going to have to deal with complaints promptly and efficiently, and you're going to have to monitor progress. So, you know, I've, I've got a case at the minute where I'm, I'm representing the individual who's been pulled into this situation by their employer, who's being sued for uh, alleged acts of harassment following a sort of night out uh, by staff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, w- one of the things I'm going to look look at very closely on behalf of the individual, I'm not acting for the employer in this situation, I'm acting for the individual alleged harasser, oh, okay. Okay, is to what extent he has been trained in equal opportunities uh, such that, can the employer avail itself of this statutory defence? So I will be looking at that training quite carefully and trying to work out on behalf of the individual who denies the harassment in the first place, whether his employer have taken all reasonable steps, not just some, but all reasonable steps. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think think that 
employers often underestimate how difficult it is to make out the defence. They sort of assume that if they've got a policy, they do a bit of training on it, then they're home and dry on that. But as you've said, it is much more complicated than that. Even more so in the context of third party harassment. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you about that. What steps should employers be taking to establish the defence, assuming that the law does come into force? And could you comment on whether you think they should be acting now, even though we don't yet know if those provisions are going to become law? Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, we've already mentioned one thing about signage and stuff like that. But, you know, having clear procedures in place to deal with difficult slash uh, harassing issues would be an obvious step for an employer to take in that situation. So, uh, you know, acting robustly so the the customer comes first doesn't necessarily isn't the starting point. No, you know, if somebody is no. if somebody is being racist, for example, should you be throwing them out your restaurant rather than sort of moving them to a quiet corner and getting them served by somebody else, for yeah. example? Yeah. So. You know, the things that I would suggest that employers can do, I think, really revolve around supporting staff, even if the law doesn't change. So, no, I think what employers should do really is identify sort of harassment and bullying that the staff face and put in place a strategy to tackle it. So some some industries will be more prone to this than others. Obviously, the more customer facing and the type of establishment that you run will pose with it higher or lesser risks depending on what you do so you know anything that where alcohol is involved for example could could be a yeah. higher risk than somewhere where it's not so i think the starting point really for me is as an employer find out how much of a problem this is in your workforce you know if it's if it is a problem then you know try and work out what you can do about it ask your staff questions about the experience you know are they being or have been harassed or bullied by third parties that come into contact with that work you know, if so, how often, you know, have they reported it? And if not, why not? You know, once you've got that information, you can start doing something about it, can't you? So you can find out if there's particular members of staff that are being targeted. You mm. know, is there certain common characteristics that that, are, that that make them a target? You know, race, sex, age, that type of stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. ha- have in place a clear system so that staff can quickly and easily report and record incidents so they can, you know, take them out of the firing line, so to speak, and, Make sure that as an organisation, you've got a robust procedure in place for dealing with the incidents. So, yeah. you know, decide how you're going to tackle those types of abuse so, and reflect that in a in a written policy. So if staff know, for example, uh, and the signage around the organisation, that there's a zero approach to abuse. If they know that the managers are going to step in and they actually do step in, you know, that's a good thing. You know, are you going to take this take the extreme step of banning customers? You know, under what circumstances will you do that as an organisation? Yeah. You might be able to empower your staff to put the phone down or walk away from somebody that's abusing them rather than, you know, just take it, yeah. you know, which is obviously not ideal. So, and then at the back end of that really then is, you know, that that's obviously a bit of proactive and, and, and advice and in terms of how you deal with things as it's happening. But, you know, after, after the event, there's also an obligation in my view. So how are you going to support those staff that are experiencing harassment or discrimination? You know, do you want to move them to another temp- position temporarily and how... Is there a process in place for having those discussions with the person who's been harassed? You know, should you give them a buddy, for example? But the key thing with all of this, I think, is to look at what issues that you face and deal with them promptly, consistently, and in line with an agreed approach. So you can then monitor these complaints and address specific issues via training and education. Because it might be that the staff themselves can be trained to 
diffuse situations. I'm not saying that's the same as standing there and being abused, mm. okay, because that's not acceptable. But there might be some training that can be provided to staff to try and diffuse situations, yeah. okay, to stop them from escalating. And I think really evaluating your progress on a regular basis and adapting your training and education is appropriate. So if you go to an employment tribunal and say, look, this is what we're trying to do and this is what we did at the start, we pulled together all of our lists, we sat down with the staff, worked it all out with them, agreed a policy with them as to how we're going to deal with certain situations. This is what we do when it happens. This is how we deal with it afterwards. Yeah. You're in a way better position, in my view, to to deal with those uh, third-party harassment uh, yeah, types agreed. of issues. So. There's some good tips there. I think the one that stood out for me was you talked about empowering staff to you know, not have to stand there and take it. And and that sort of sprung to, sprung to mind a, a few scenarios that happened with my daughters. Now, I've got daughters, what, they're 25 and 21. And they both, when they first started out um, working, it was all doing bar work, that sort of stuff. And both of them felt very uncomfortable about being able to sort of speak back to customers that were rude um, or abusive towards them. None of their line managers, such as they were, had ever sort of said to them, actually, it's okay to walk away or come and get us. They, you know, they very much took took on board the fact that it was their job to absorb all of this and they were being paid to do so. And I think that that's a really important message to get out, no matter how old, you know, your, your staff are they need to know that you've got their back and that they don't have to put up with this sort of nonsense and that they can as you say put the phone down walk away say to the um person that they're dealing with i'm sorry if you continue to talk to me like that then this this conversation ends you know and i think that yeah really i'm not going to serve you and x y yeah. and so and obviously yeah. the different type of bar you know obviously bars are a good example because they tend to you know be full of people with alcohol saying inappropriate things but you know depending on the type of bar you might have a bouncer on the front door for example and you might say well i'm yeah. sorry but i'm not only am i not serving you but you're going to be removed from the establishment by some gorilla on the front door so it's just <laughs> okay so in terms of um letting our listeners know what's going on with the bill we send out regular updates in our newsletters so if you're not subscribed to receive these if you let me know i can add you to the mailing list and then you can see how this developed and what steps we, we recommend that you take to make sure that you stay on the right side of the law yeah, and we push a lot out on LinkedIn, don't we, Joe? So again, we if, you, if you link in with either Joe or I, then we're happy to try and keep you updated in that respect. So it's really interesting that, Joe. Okay, and that, that's it for today. If you want to hear more about the latest employment law updates alongside expert commentary, tune in in a fortnight. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much. See you next time. Bye-bye.